Uh, we continue on this morning with our study on Paul's prayers, and today we will be exploring the subject of Paul's passion for people. Paul's passion for people. And I think this will be a good subject to talk about, especially if we desire to grow in our own prayer life. Um, as, we, as we learn to pray better, as we mature in that area, um, one of the things I think that, that's going to help us is growing in our love for people, uh, especially uh, those who are in Christ, the people that are now your brothers and sisters in Christ who bear the name of, uh, of God. And so um, as we discuss these things, just keep that in mind um, and see how uh, what we talk about today um, would help you uh, gain an appreciation for brothers and sisters in Christ who maybe you don't often uh, talk to or maybe people that you often miss, um, people that you, you may think, man, I, ha- I haven't uh, prayed for this person, I haven't thought about this person, um, there should be more a concern for this person or a love for this person. Um, and, and so keep those things in mind as we, as we talk about this. Now, in our exploration of this, I want us to look at 1 Thessalonians 3. Uh, verses 9 through 13. I'm going to put it up here on the screen. Again, if you can't see it, um, feel free to turn into your physical Bibles. Can I get a volunteer to read that passage? So as we've been looking at Paul's prayers in the previous classes, uh, this one in particular, I think, uh, portrays Paul's deepest emotions. Uh, You see words like thanksgiving, joy, pray, earnestly, night and day, face to face, love, heart, etc. So just by listing these words, you can immediately sense that Paul is manifesting something that's very close to his heart as he as he says those words. Um, and, and we see from this passage that the thing which is being manifested is his deep concern for the Thessalonian church. There's a real care there um, that, that's not seen in other passages or in other, in other uh, chapters or books uh, in the New Testament. And so it really stands out, his care and his love for the Thessalonian church. Uh, and you see that in the surrounding verses as well, uh, before and after. Paul cares about the Thessalonians not in a business relationship kind of way, not in a, a distant way where he's the pastor, they're the congregation. Uh, you know, he cares about the success of the church. That, that's, not, that's not the kind of care that he has for them. He has a deeply personal, uh, involved kind of care for them. We see Paul expressing even his desire to see them face to face. And this was a deep love for the church. Now, in a world like today, with internet and telecommunication, 
it, it may seem strange, right, for someone to say, you know, I long to see you face to face, especially if you're, you're very introverted. Um, you know, sometimes, and I, I could admit, sometimes I prefer texting or an email instead of speaking to you face to face, you know, with, with all kinds of insecurities that come about um, when that's not something that you're used to. Uh, but, but this was different. Uh, he had a desire to be with them. He had a desire to see them face to face. For Paul, this was a Holy Spirit motivated desire to be with the saints and to be encouraged by their love for Christ. And this is where that prayer arises from. And there are two observations, I think, that we can see from this passage. And you'll see them in your handout, the two key points there. Paul, number one, he prays for an opportunity to see the church face to face. And then that second point, Paul prays that God would direct them, increase love in them, and keep them holy. So let's, let's uh, discuss the first point there, the first observation. Paul prays for an opportunity to see the church face to face. So uh, let me give you a bit of background there, why he's longing to see them face to face. Uh, Paul had planted this church, and we read about that in Acts 17. Uh, and prior to planting that church, it's recorded that Paul and Silas had been badly beaten in uh, Philippi, where they were also imprisoned and then uh, entered to leave that district. And after arriving at Thessalonica, Paul goes on a task of evangelizing and church planning, and that's where he plants the church. But once again, the opposition was so bad that he withdrew after a few weeks. In other words, when he planted that church, he was there to plant it, but he had to withdraw almost immediately within, within the, a few weeks. So he wasn't able to invest a lot of time there. And so you can already, you, that, that kind of gives a background of why he was anxious to go back and see, are they okay? Are, are they doing well? Are they growing spiritually? Um, and so that was in Paul's mind. Um, after success at Berea, he found himself facing enormous spiritual and even intellectual hurdles in Athens, and, and also the moral and cultural barriers that you see uh, as you read through the book of Corinthians. You see there were a lot of moral issues there in that big city. And it's there in Corinth where he pens that letter to the Thessalonian church. It's in that environment where there's moral decay. And yet he's thinking about this church, the Thessalonian church. Paul's has a deep concern that obviously pains him deeply. And if you look at 1 Thessalonians 2, 17, look what he says there. He says, But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face. Another verse that kind of sets the tone. 1 Thessalonians 3, 1 through 2. He says, Therefore we could bear it no longer. We were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother, and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith. So you see there that he was so desperate to find out how they were doing that he sent Timothy to, to go there to exhort them to see how they're doing. And uh, also in 1 Thessalonians 3, 5, For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, 
I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. From chapter 3, uh, verse 5, we see that Paul says he could bear it no longer, right? And at some point, he couldn't go on without finding out how, he was, how they were doing. Um, again, he says, I sent to learn about your faith. And this is to say that it pained him to think that maybe they could have gotten corrupted by some sort of false theology that may have come in through the back door. After sending Timothy, we read that Timothy came back with good news. Right? He came back to report to Paul and he said, they're doing fantastic. This church is thriving. They've been faithful. And so here's a Christian, Paul, who is so committed to the well-being of other Christians that he is simply burning up inside, with, uh, desiring to help them, to be with them, to nurture them, to feed them himself. He wants to be present in the midst of them. And because he couldn't be there, he devoted prayers to them. And this is what you see expressed in our main text. Again, this wasn't someone who was content to minister from a distance. And now it's interesting, in our current context, there's all kinds of churches out there. And not to be um, so critical about some of these churches, but you see the error in uh, some of the modern churches where uh, they do ministry from a distance, if you will. It's the pastor recording his sermon, and then it gets projected in a sort of a multi-site setting where the pastor doesn't feel the need to be there with the congregation. That's not what you see with Paul. Paul wanted to be present there with the people. He wasn't interested in a a digital version of him being projected, and obviously that couldn't happen. Um, But just to kind of give you an idea on how um, that's just not what you see in Paul. He wanted to be in the midst of them, serving them. And again, that passion shapes the way he prays. Uh, firstly, his prayer arose out of this intense longing to be with them. And secondly, his prayer arose out of a passionate affection that seeks the good of others, not their praise or their gratitude or acceptance or sort, some sort of professional self-fulfillment. He wasn't worried about his achievement, like, oh no, I, I, I planted this church and it's not successful. This is going to make me look bad. Not at all. And I think that's an important observation because often when, um, and, and you think about yourself, often when we express how wonderful it would be to be back home with loved ones, it, sort of how Paul is doing there, he, he, he wishes to be back with them. Um, when we do that, Uh, it's not only expressing love for those whom we have at home, like family members who live in another state. We say, we wish we can be there with them. We long to see them face to face. Oftentimes when we say that, it's not only only love that we're expressing there, but it's mixed in with a confession of loneliness, maybe nostalgia. You you, you want that feeling that you had when you uh, were living with the people from your past or or with family from, from a long time ago. That's not what we see in Paul either. Uh, again, we all, like, we, we all like to be with those we love uh, because in most instances, they are the ones who love us. They make us feel stable, cherished. Uh, and when they're around, we feel like we belong. And these are normal feelings. But Paul's interest in the well-being of the saints is clearly for their own spiritual benefit, that they're growing in Christ. That was his, his biggest concern. And when he rejoices, right, after receiving the good news that they're doing okay, 
It's because they're growing in faith and they're growing in love and they're growing in hope. And if he's worried for them, it's a worry that comes from a desire for them to to remain steadfast and faithful to the gospel. And then thirdly, we observe that Paul's prayer springs from an unaffected delight at reports of the Thessalonian church uh, and their faith, love, and their perseverance and their strength. And I, I think this is one of the, this is an aspect that I personally find most interesting. Um, the, the fact that it was an unaffected delight at the report of the Thessalonians' faith and, and love and perseverance. And what I mean by that, I'll give you an example. Uh, there are some people for whom the only interest that they have or, or the only thing that comes across as interesting is bad news, right? Um, sometimes bad news is the only thing that interests us. Um, and if we hear of Christians who are in trouble, a pastor who has fallen into sin, a theological institution with internal issues, a ministry that's falling, then all of a sudden we're filled with concern. Um, and, and we begin to denounce all kinds of evils at that time. And, and we, we start to analyze all the sins that were involved because it's such a controversial issue. It captures our full attention. However, when the good news that things are doing well in uh, a certain ministry or, or we hear of a church that's thriving and doing well or, or pastors who are being fruitful, when we hear about the good news, uh, it, it's in a sense bor- boring. Or we don't have interest in it. Um, and part of that is because there's nothing for us to denounce. Um, and... And that's a bad thing. If this, is, if this is the kind of Christian that you are, it's not resembling how Paul's attitude was towards the church. Paul had a much more optimistic uh, view of the church. He was interested in the well-being of the people at Thessalonica. And therefore, we shouldn't consider that boring ourselves when we, when we hear that brothers and sisters are doing well. And this is something that we all are prone to struggle with. It's easy to be the kind of Christian that is primarily known for what you disagree with and what you're against as, as opposed to what you're for. Uh, people would say, oh yeah, I know so-and-so. He's the guy that's against blank. You know, we, they all know you based on what you hate or what you despise or what you're against as far as, as, as what you believe. Or some might say, oh, I know about Faith Baptist Church. They're the church that are anti-fill-the-blank. Um, But this is a problem when you begin to grow as a Christian and the only thing that you know how to be is polemical and argumentative. And the thing that makes you whole as a Christian is some sort of position that you're against. Your Christian mind only uh, functions in one lane, if that's the case. Uh, The Christian books that you buy or the Christian videos that you watch are all answers to objections, ammo to your arguments. You fail to be nuanced. You fail to be whole. And you stop being a, a, a complete follower of Christ. You, you become just one-sided, um, extreme on one end, very Im- imbalanced. And one of the most wonderful expressions of our faith is this deep love for the people of God, in which we see in this prayer by Paul. Every report of growth in faith and love becomes an occasion for great rejoicing for Paul. Paul was excited. He was happy. He desired to be with the people of God. Um, Of course, he feared um, or or was worried about them that false teaching would come in. 
but, but ultimately, he, we see in these prayers that he rejoiced and his, his biggest concern was always the well-being of this church. Interestingly, you see John have that same sentiment. Uh, look at 2 John 4. It says, I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we're commanded by the Father. Also, uh, 3 John 3 through 4, it says, For I rejoice greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you're walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. No greater joy than to, to be excited and, and, and to be joyful about the fact that the believers are doing well and they're, they're growing in their faith and they're walking in truth. And so in the same way, Paul's prayers were a, a product of his passion for, for people. Uh, he had unaffected fervency in prayer and was not whipped up in emotionalism, but actual overflow of his love uh, for his brothers and sisters in Christ. So I think we should take some time to really think about um, whether or not we appreciate what the Spirit of God is doing in this church. I know there's a lot of setbacks and, and a lot of things that may have happened throughout the year or things that maybe are different for you or whatever it is that, that you may be observing. Think about, stop and think about all that the Spirit of God is doing in this church. Uh, the truth is still proclaimed. Um, we're still sitting in decent chairs and we have a wonderful building and, and the music ministry is still doing well and there, there are plenty of teachers here in this church, pastors who are really, really dedicated to helping and serving this church. Um, and I, I see it also even with the members here, um, just the patience that you all have and the love that you have for one another. I see on my Facebook sometimes, I'll look at, I mean, I don't go search for each one of you, but I'll, I'll see in my feed just how you all gather together sometimes um, or, or pray together or go to certain events together. Um, and it's just encouraging, personally, to, to be able to see the good things that the Spirit of God is doing in this church. And I think we need to stop and, 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 and really thank God um, all that, that the Lord is doing. Uh, the grace that we see in our brothers and sisters in Christ, particularly in this church. In the same way, we see... Uh, Paul having that love for his brothers and sisters in Christ. And this means that if we are to improve our praying, we must strengthen our love for our brothers and sisters in Christ. We have to um, take time to meditate and pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ in a positive way, in a way that says, I love this brother. I love this sister. Um, look at all the good things that the Lord is doing in them. Now, uh, superficially fervent prayers devoid of this kind of love are in the end phony, of course, and hollow and shallow. So Paul's not suggesting that you go and fake it, right? But the implication here is that whatever the Spirit is doing in Paul, we should long for that, right? It's not that we start modeling these apostles in a fake way. We should see what the Spirit of God is doing in these men and say, I, I want that. I, I think I'm lacking in that area. And then we pray to that end. Spirit of God, help me to love and care in the same way that Paul is caring and loving for the saints. 
And as we grow in loving individual saints, like I love you, I love you, and I, I care about you, and I, I want to see you grow, and, and I'm excited that you're growing, it's going to affect how you pray for, for the people here. Let's look at the second point there on your handout. This is the second and the final observation. Paul prays that God would direct them, increase love in them, and keep them holy. And so right after receiving the report that the Thessalonian church was doing great, which we see early on in the book in chapter 1, Paul goes and gives thanks to God. But interestingly, in chapter 2, excuse me, uh, chapter 3 rather, verse 9, Paul brings that back again. He brings it up again, his gratitude. Um, And he says, I'll put it up here. Uh, in 1 Thessalonians 3, 9, For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you? For all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God. He's essentially saying here, how can we thank God enough for you in return for all the joy we have because of you? He was so joyful that the church was doing well that he brought it back up again in the same letter. And this reveals another principle, I think, in Pauline prayers which is the importance of thanksgiving in Paul's prayers. Uh, One thing you ought to note is that although the thanksgiving is for the Thessalonian church, it's a prayer that is directly addressed to God. He's saying, God, he's talking to God, he's saying, God, thank you for them, you see? Even though he's thankful directly to them and thankful for them, he's bringing it up to God and saying, God, I thank you for them. In other words, God is the one in whom all blessings flow, like like the uh, doxology um, says. However, Paul chooses not to keep his his gratitude private. Uh, He informs the Thessalonians that he's thankful to God for them. Uh, This is to say that in many situations, it might actually be appropriate and beneficial to share with someone your thankfulness to God for them. And so, on the one hand, we know that if we see a brother or sister doing well in the Lord or doing something great, you know, you're compelled to go to them and say, thank you for that. And so on the one hand, we know theologically that it's really God working through them and God uh, enabling them to do these great things. And so, of course, we, we must go to God and thank God for them because we know that God is the one in whom all blessings flow. But Paul goes beyond that. He's well aware that all good things come from God, but he found it important to mention it it in his letter and to tell this church, I'm thanking God for you, right? Why? He can just say that privately in his prayer closet to God, but he felt that it was necessary to mention it to the, the people as a way of encouragement. I think that's a good principle, right? Uh, his, his approach here stands out, um, and, and it stands out if you contrast it with two bad extremes, right? On the one hand, you may come across a flatterer, right, who constantly compliments everyone, and their strokes and compliments are so thickly distributed that you wonder if the person is trying to win a popularity contest or something. Or maybe this person um, does these things because they themselves have a strong desire to receive compliments in return, they long for that affirmation. And what starts off as what, what they would think is a gift of encouragement ends up becoming this 
loud habit of just regurgitating superficial compliments. Um, you know, that, you can see that being one extreme where you're just trying to encourage everyone and then it becomes superficial. And then uh, again, we, we see that this is not something that Paul appreciates, right? In 1 Thessalonians 2, 3 to 6, he says, For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, right? But just as we have been approved by God to, to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. In other words, he, 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 he doesn't approach his interaction with, with people or his interaction as, as a representative of the gospel with flattery, with words that manipulate people, that are empty, but he seeks to be pure in his speech. And Paul here considers flattery as an act of impurity. And what it does is it, does, it actually doesn't promote encouragement. And it doesn't actually promote truth. And, um, and, and when it is time to bring compliment or encouragement, it sort of devalues it, right? But learning to hold back and wait till you really mean that compliment and the person really needs this encouragement. Learning how to do that. But again, that's one extreme when you're just dishing out compliments to everyone. On the other extreme, there, is a kind of, there, there are kinds of personalities that are so precise and deeply committed to truth that all praise finally belong to God alone, and so they rarely thank you for anything, and if they do, they do it grudgingly, right? And in a sense, they recognize rightly that anything good that we have ultimately springs from the Father above, right? However, they conclude wrongly that no encouragement should be administered to those who are merely mediators or secondary mediators of God's divine grace. And so, you can have, let's just say, someone here, and I know many of you, put countless hours in working on something, a church program or a function, and never receive a word of thanks, let alone praise. These people, this other extreme, this kind of person, might believe that a thank you might affect you in a negative way and it might get to your head. And so I'm never going to thank you because I don't want you to get puffed up, sort of, you know, that sort of extreme. But when you look at Paul in his prayers and the way that he lets the people know that he's thankful for them, in comparison with these two extremes, we see that Paul's approach is very different. He encourages Christians by thanking God for the grace in their lives. More specifically, he encourages Christians by actually telling them that he's thanking God for them. Now, you always want to be discerning when you do that, but it's just a great example that we see in Paul's prayers that he prays to God directly giving thanks, but he also shares it with the people, showing them that I've come before the Lord and I thank God for you. Uh, he did that, he did that discerningly um, because he saw fit that this would encourage th this group of people. So, moving along. Not only does Paul thank God for them, we see in verses 10 through 11 that Paul prays that God would strengthen these believers. Okay. 
Uh, It says there in verses 10 through 11, As we pray most earnestly, night and day, that we may see you face to face. And, And he says, And supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And so we learn from these verses the importance of frequent, regular prayer times here as well. Um, you see where he says, night and day. There was, a, there was a consistency in his prayer, a pattern in his prayer, um, a, a time set aside for praying for this uh, particular church. And Paul is committed to praying for his church. And like I said, he has a set time day and night to do so. And his passion for the people of the Thessalonian church I think is more evident in his commitment to pray for them. Uh, The fact that he's committed to do so, I think, shows how much he loves um, these people. So uh, another good practice that we should take from from this example from Paul, uh, does your love for people cause you to, to be fervent in your prayer, to be consistent in praying for them, Um, especially those who you rarely pray for. Um, Maybe it would be a good practice to to think about those individuals in the church and say, I'm going to start praying for this person, and I'm going to do it on a regular basis and do it for a good period of time. Um, And and, and I think this is is what we see here um, as an expression and passion for his love for, for them. And then he goes on in verse 12, and he says, And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. This is an interesting prayer because when Paul planted this church, he was forced to leave early. As I mentioned before, he had to, he had to leave early. And one would assume that because of the little time Paul was able to spend with this young church, you would think that his top priority prayer would be more about doctrine and sound teaching. That they would increase in knowledge as opposed to love, right? Right? And, and, and we do see him talk about this early on. And even in the, the, the first letter to the Thessalonians, he does address doctrine. He does address the importance of uh, understanding the second coming, for example, which is a big theme in, in the first letter and also in the second letter. He's, he is correcting doctrine there. But in this particular prayer, his, his greatest interest is that they would love each other and that they would increase in that love for one another. And again, considering that they were a young church, It's interesting that that was of top priority for him. And the truth is, doctrine is very important, yet it is the love among the brothers and sisters in Christ that helps sustain and protect those doctrines in the church. Uh, it, it, It is a misuse of doctrine and of the word of God and the teaching of scripture to handle those truths in, in certain ways that are not appropriate to time and situation. There, there are ways that you can manipulate sound doctrine in a way that hurts other brothers and sisters in Christ. The, the truth was meant to be given appropriately. It's like what the psalm says, a, a, a good word, uh, a word in season is sweeter than, than honey. A, a person who has sound doctrine has the responsibility to administer it and apply it in the right way um, using wisdom. Um, and so, as important as doctrine is, doctrine in the hands of the wrong person is very dangerous. And we've seen abuses, and some of us have experienced abuses, um, as we 
try to handle these things and apply it in, in, the, wrong, in the wrong way, at the wrong time, in the wrong setting, etc. Paul was wise here, though. Paul knew that it was very important that if they're thriving in their sound doctrine, they better not be doing that apart from love and love, and love from one another. That there, there has to be evidence that love is growing and abounding and overflowing in this congregation if things are going to be done right. Like I said, it's the love that helps sustain and protect these doctrines and, and allow them to be represented correctly. In love, we bear with one another and we learn to apply these truths and pass it on in the right way. In love, we preserve it and we're able, we're able to discuss sound doctrine in a way that is charitable, in a way that is helpful, and those are things that are, are very important. The lack of love makes us often misapply these truths, and we learn from this that as important as it is to deposit, uh, to, to guard the deposit of sound truth that was passed on to us by the apostles and, and, and through scripture, we, we have to also seek that love would grow among us. And this was Paul's prayer in the Thessalonian church. And then finally, verse 13, we see that Paul prays that these believers will be so strengthened in heart that they would be blameless and holy when the end comes. He says, So that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. So in, in biblical thought, uh, the heart is not only the center of personality or the seat of the will and understanding, but the heart is also a place where hidden motives can be kept. In First uh, Thessalonians 2.4, we, we, we get this idea from here. It says, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. In other words, our hearts can hide uh, hidden motives there uh, where we see that God will eventually test those things. And so this speaks of the heart as something that God tests. Yet, if our hearts are strengthened and if our love and allegiance to Jesus are enlarged, then we will not need to fear the day in which the Lord comes, right? If you're a Christian and you're growing and your, uh, your heart is being strengthened in the way that Paul speaks about here, then you grow less and less um, in the fear of condemnation and more and more in your assurance. The God that we serve will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the hearts. And you see that in 1 Corinthians 4, 5. And at that time, each will receive their praise from God. That's what it says there in that passage in 1 Corinthians. In other words, God will return and he will expose the things that are hidden. Paul prays that Christians would be strengthened in a way that they would become blameless and holy in the presence of our God. And, and we see in Philippians 2.15, verses 16, where it says that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. What does it mean that God is coming back 
to expose those things. What does it mean that we're called to be blameless and innocent? This does not speak about being blameless as saying that our hearts must be in a state of sinless perfection. And we know that from the New Testament uh, where it says in 1 John 1.8 that he who thinks that he is without sin deceives himself. The blameless and innocence and without blemish, that concept speaks of our true unity with Christ. And I'm going to read from a commentary by John Gill. He says about this passage, he says, this, this respects not their being blameless in the sight of God, which the saints are not in themselves, being not without sin, though they are, as considered in Christ, clothed with his righteousness and washed in his blood. In other words, this exhortation to be blameless and innocent means that on that last day, the hope is that we are found in Christ, that we are found in him. So why is it that Paul needs to... Um, needs to pray that they increase in, uh, in uh, strength and in hope and these things and in faith. He's praying those things because those are the things, those are the means in which our heart grows, right? He's saying, uh, you know, Father, help them uh, grow and find assurance in Christ as opposed to um, doing some sort of works-based righteousness that would... Uh, cause their heart to be cleaner than it was before. Again, uh, when Paul prays for the church to be strengthened to this end, he's referring to being strengthened in faith and oneness in Christ in whom in him we're made blameless and innocent. And so Paul here is praying with eternity's values in view, right? And I think likewise, when we pray, we must do so knowing that these people and we ourselves are moving towards toward the last day when God will come, by, come back and, and uh, reveal what is hidden in the hearts of, of those, those who are in the church. Having eternity in mind should drive us to pray for people, especially our own church. And again, it's always to that end with that eschatological view that one day Christ will come back. And our desire for every member of this church is that you're found in Christ, that your faith is strong in him. And I think there's, there's nothing more fundamental than to pray that God may strengthen our hearts so that they would be blameless and holy, holy in the presence of God on the last day. And so ask yourself, when was the last time you offered that kind of petition for the people of God? Do you pray, Lord, strengthen so-and-so, uh, strengthen my sister here, strengthen my brother here in faith, assure them uh, that they're in Christ? I think it's important that we practice this set yourself a task of faithfully praying for a Christian from whom you don't normally pray for. And after doing this, consider telling that person, right, that I'm encouraged about your faith, as Paul did here in his prayer. I'm encouraged about your faith. Your faith I'm praying for you. Um, doing that as an encouragement. And seek to make it a, a source of your joy, in fact. I think that, that's probably more important. Not doing this as a duty necessarily, but, but something that um, you do out of an overflow of your love for the people of God, your desire for, for their growth. Any thoughts or comments on anything that was mentioned, brother? You would joy from too. Yes. Because you should begin enjoying and expressing love for one another. Amen. I know we all know this, but First Corinthians thirteen thirteen. But now faith, hope, love, and love, these 
these three, but the greatest of these is love. Amen. The weeks when we use faith with love, it's stronger. Absolutely. When we use hope in love, it's stronger. Amen. So the reminder, the engine of everything is love. Amen. You know, and, and that, that, that God would be seen in that love because he is the source of love. Yeah. God is love. And he take the glory and the honor. Amen. Amen. Very important. Very good. Yeah. Really appreciated um, the comment about the public Thanksgiving and reminding them. There's something about how that can become contagious and strike uh, a, a biblically balanced optimism. Yes. Where people are just like, hey, look, we all know we've got sin and issues, all that kind of stuff. But it's encouraging if someone knows, like, I'm just thankful in the Lord for you. Amen. You know, just. There, there's something that, that's encouraging when you hear that. And you know it's absolutely. not flattery. It's right. It's something going on. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, just appreciate it. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. Excellent. Praise God. Anthony? Yeah. Um, I also think that Paul was praying the will of God over the church. Based on the new commandment, though, given by our Lord Jesus in John 13, mm -hmm. 34, 35. Mm -hmm. um, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Mm -hmm. says, I have love. We also are to love one another. Yes. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples and you have love for one another. Amen. Amen. That's an excellent verse. It's a good reminder. Um, it, it proves our identity in Christ when we love one another. Excellent. Yeah. Desmond. Yeah, I was thinking about, uh, you were talking about, you know, nuances and not just being someone who's mm -hmm. or, you know, whatever the extreme, but I really appreciate that. Yeah, it's interesting that what uh, what makes you, you can spot a mature Christian when you see that they're not one-sided, but they're 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 whole, right? They're the categories that Desmond just listed. Um, they're not always polemical, or they're not always fighting, or they're not always, um, but they're not always this either, where it's imbalanced. But but they know how to take the whole counsel of God and apply it uh, in a way that is consistent in everything that they do. And you see that kind of maturity as something beautiful and something that we see being the goal in what um, we're called to be, and Christ modeled that perfectly. Pito, and then we'll close out. Mm -hmm. But in other passages, sometimes it's a unity. 
Yeah, praise God. out and thank you all for the comments thank you for your insight let's pray our gracious God we desire that our hearts would grow in love for the church for the individuals that are here and help us to love the members the way that Paul did give us the same concerns as well as the same joy when we see others growing in love and in faith and in hope may this express itself in our own prayers, Lord. That's our desire. For your glory, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you all.